Please turn with me to the book of Joel. Be in Joel chapter 2 this morning. Joel chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses there. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would guide us to it and through it, that we would be students of your word, that we would also be submissive to it. We would not see it as a merely an academic text, but it is, a, it is your very words to us. These are words of redemption and hope. These are words that teach us who you are, how we should behave as believers, what we ought to believe. And so, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us this morning, guide us to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, the theme here is the, is the idea of the day of the Lord and what that means and what that looks like. Um, I've told you a story before, I believe, about a man named uh, Harry R. Truman, not, not our famous president, but uh, Harry R. Truman, who was uh, famous in 1980 when he would not leave his uh, establishment at the foot of Mount St. Helens because he, uh, you know, he refused to leave because he knew the mountain and he knew it wasn't going to explode. And Well, the rest of that's history, obviously. Uh, he's about 100 feet under the earth at this point. Um, <clears throat> so when I read this text this week, it made me think of, of that, this, this concept of the day of the Lord, and this impending judgment. And that, that made me think then of Revelation chapter 6. So turn with me to Revelation 6, please. Revelation 6. And I'll use this to introduce our text today because I think it's very good in the way that we look at judgment and as believers versus unbelievers here. So Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17 says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and full, the full moon like, became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone... And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So, Unlike Harry R. Truman, in this story, the kings of the earth and others of the great people and even the low people were calling upon the mountains to fall on them. Not denying that it was going to happen, but were actually calling on it to happen. It's funny that they would shun God in their lives, and now that God is coming in judgment, they're calling upon the creation to hide them from the wrath that was due them. Well, the mountain's only answer to one, and that's the Lamb of God, who said he could command the mountains and cast cast them into the sea with one word, which is incredible to think. But on this day, they're going to stand and watch as the, the mountains are going to stand and watch as the Lamb exacts his judgment on those who 
deserved his wrath. So what did they fear? Well, the text says, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? This concept of the great day of the Lord is all throughout Scripture. Sometimes it refers to a particular event or a happening, like a natural disaster, an invading army, something like that. Sometimes it refers to the final day of judgment when Christ will return, which is what we looked at in Revelation 6, separating his people from the unbelievers, finally bringing his people home to be with him. And so what do we see in Joel then? Do we see a one-time event or do we see this pointing to the end? I think the answer is both. As we look at this passage, it's obvious that there's a very near application to the people who were living there in Joel's day, people who were in the midst of this locust plague and perhaps even an oncoming army, depending on how you look at the the text. However, we can look at it for our own day as well, and I think that's important for us here today, looking forward to this great day of the Lord, when the kings of the earth will beg the creation to snuff them out rather than face the Lord himself. The fear of God, this concept of the fear of God, has left our society as a whole. Not that it was ever there, really. But it shouldn't, so, and that shouldn't surprise us at all as believers, but it's also left the church, I'm afraid, and that should bother us to no end. And so what do we do? How do we grow in an appreciation for this event and understand it, yet maintain our understanding of salvation by grace through faith, the idea that well, God will deliver his people despite his people? He's going to do that. I think this text is helpful for us to see how we measure that and how we balance that. It also directs us to a proper response to our lack of fear when it comes to our relationship with God. And so with that, I'm going to look at two main ideas. First, the day of the Lord, and then second, the day of repentance. With that, I'll read the text, verses 1 through 17 of Joel chapter 2. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Joel chapter 2, 1 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There has never, like there has never been before, nor will there be again after them through all the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. And with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devour the, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through, with, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. 
the sun or the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride enter her cha- and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, "Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your her- and make not your heritage a reproach and a, a byword among the nations. Why they why should they say among the people, where is their God?" Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So one thing that I want to do to kind of introduce this as well is in the book of Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen's sermon. And we've read from this before, but I want to read from it again this morning. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Acts seven forty-four through 50. And this sets up this idea of where is God and where does he exist. Acts seven forty four through 50. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And where is my place of rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Stephen is preaching to a group of Jewish leaders, and he's on trial here. And what is the assumption that he's preaching against? Well, it's the people were assuming that because they were God's people, that God would protect them. This upstart Christian group was bad and that they should get rid of it, and that the real Jewish, the real God's people would would live forever. They just needed to just simply be born. They were God's people. However, Stephen reminds them from their own scriptures, it doesn't matter that that God doesn't take residence in a temple or in cities, yet he does so in the hearts of his people. And if you keep reading, you'll see that their reaction was not a pleasant one. They did not like that. It's very telling for our own day, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what the capital of Israel is. God is on the throne. 
and the hearts of his people are how he now inhabits the earth. Note here in the text, it didn't matter that the people were God's people in Joel chapter 2. Look what's going on in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Why would you sound an alarm? Why would you blow a trumpet? It's an alarm. There's an army coming. Where is it invading? It's coming to the very mountain of God. Perhaps the assumption was that God would personally defend his holy hill to keep his people safe there in Jerusalem. Now he stands in judgment against them, ready to see them destroyed unless they repent. Recently, like as in this last week, the Pope suggested that the phrase, lead us not into temptation, be stricken from the text of the Lord's Prayer because, quote unquote, that's not how God is. That's what uh, the Pope says. And it's not all, it's not unlike the Pope to want to change scripture, obviously, uh, but he doesn't have that kind of authority. He's not able to do that by himself. It is confounding to me that someone who um, supposedly has all this biblical knowledge with, with the Pope doesn't know that scripture, um, doesn't know scripture enough to see that's exactly how God is. God doesn't directly tempt us. We know that, but he does test us. We see this here in Joel chapter 2. Trials and difficulties are a part of life and they are part of God's ordained plan. And for Israel here and for the church, I think we have to see that. They couldn't stand behind a temple just because they were Jews any more than we can stand behind some other moniker that we think makes us right before God. So at the end of the day, we have to face them. And that's something that we all have to deal with. And so that brings us to the first point, the day of the Lord. Verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, like there has never been before. This picture of a thick cloud covering a mountain, imagery would have reminded them of Sinai, of Moses, the people of God in the wilderness. God was on the mountain there. The mountain was shrouded in cloud. The people were not allowed to be on that mountain. And as you read through the Old Testament, I think it's important for us to understand how imagery is very important, seeing how these things kind of come together. The Jewish reader reads this, and it takes them back to Sinai. It's a picture of foreboding. It's a picture of bad things to come. Look at verses 3 through 5. I'm not going to read all of it again, but this is the picture of this army. The fire devours before them. It's the, land, it's the Garden of Eden in front of them, but behind it, it's complete desolation. That's the picture of this army. Again, likely uh, using strong imagery here for locusts, like that were invading the land, but it could be a picture of a future invading actual army, which Israel seemed to have lots of future invading armies in its future. Um, and so what follows in its wake? These pick the soldiers jumping through the walls and jumping walls and storming the city, quaking the very earth as they came. But I love verse 11. You have these very vivid pictures throughout of this army invading the city. But look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who's in charge? 
the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all armies, whether actual chariots or horses or symbolically represented the, that are symbolically representing the locusts or the actual locusts, either way, the armies hear his voice and they obey. They do as they're told. He is the commander of his army. We're asked this rhetorical question in the text. Who can endure the day of the Lord? What do we do with this? How do we look at this as far as how we're supposed to process this today? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. This is our, our Lord Jesus speaking here. And... Talking about this great day of the Lord, 29 through 31, Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. With great power and great with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Hopefully you see the similarities there between Revelation six and this passage in Matthew twenty four, except what do we read? Well the tribes of the earth are mourning, yet the angels of the Lord are calling his elect and gathering them up. This whole chapter, actually Matthew chapter 24, is, is a fairly, fairly difficult chapter um, to understand and to, to read, really. Uh, but here, these, these couple of verses for us are very plain. There is a day when the Son of Man will return, and it's going to be hard for all of the inhabitants of the earth. But notice, he's coming not only to judge, but he's coming to bring his people home to him. Though the day of the Lord represents judgment all throughout Scripture, both for the very near, for whatever people are dealing with it, and for the final act when the Lord comes back, the judging is happening, yes, but what's the Lord also coming to do? He's coming to get his people. He's coming to consummate his kingdom. He's coming to exact judgment, but ultimately his people are taken with him. Turn with me quickly to Second Peter chapter three. I think it's important for us to see how all of Scripture speaks to these ideas. Second Peter chapter three, verses eight through ten. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
What's going on here? Well, the day of the Lord is coming, but the Lord is patient with us. He's not willing that any should perish. He's going to gather all of us to himself. But there's going to be judgment. Is the church ultimately going to escape the judgment of God? Yes. However, while we are here on earth, what's going to happen? Trials and tribulations, difficulties, lots of hardship. Even one day, when the the great day of the Lord, when he comes, we'll be here to see it. There'll be difficult times. There'll be heartache. But ultimately, he's coming to bring his people home. And this should affect the way that we see the earth. It's not a place that we are escaping from, but it's a place that we live in, even while it suffers. I think that's important for us. The believers in Joel's day weren't given a free pass from the suffering then. Why should we get one now? I think that's important. How we live in a world that is suffering. Will we offer no hope and keep Jesus to ourselves? Jesus does as he pleases, but he uses means, and we are those means, to offer hope, to preach the gospel. So put yourself in Joel's day. Would you have helped a family that was starving because the locusts had killed all that they had? Sure. Better yet, how easy would it have been to help them if you had had an endless supply of water and supplies? Imagine doing that. If you just had this endless amount of food and water, you'd give it to every single person in the land. You would never stop giving it away because it wasn't costing you anything. If the supply is endless and there's no danger of running out yourself, it feels really good to give stuff away, does it not? What do we have with the gospel, brothers and sisters? Is it ours to hide? Is it ours to water down somehow so that there's still some left? No. Does it have an end? Are we going to share the gospel so much that it know, that we no longer have a place with Jesus? Are we somehow going to push ourselves out by allowing others in? No. There are an exact amount of seats at the table of the Lord. He's told us that His sheep hear his voice. Why aren't we preaching that word? Why aren't we sharing his words? Why aren't we freely giving away those things that have been given to us? Those things that aren't even ours. Brothers and sisters, the day of the Lord is upon us. Not this day, today. But we are in the last days. We have been that way since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Scriptures teach that those last days began again When he went to the Father, what are we doing with these last days? What are we doing with our days, since really there's so few compared to the the grand scheme of things? Let us give them over to to our God. Let us share freely from the wealth that we have from our Heavenly Father, whose coffers never run dry. The second point, the day of repentance. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And this makes me think of Ephesians 2. The opening verses of that chapter say something like the fact that we are dead in our trespasses, we are sons and daughters of disobedience, we are children of wrath. 
And then it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Even while I'm exacting judgment on your land, even while you are suffering, return to me with all your heart. Look at verse 13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Return to the Lord. It gives us a list of his attributes as to why we should return to him. He is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. Rend your hearts, not your garments. We talked earlier in this book about how in sadness the priests would, would, would put on sackcloth and they would tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. God's saying, don't do that. Rend your hearts. Because rending garments is just a temporary show of, I'm sorry I got caught. Rending your hearts is a permanent turn of the heart toward their God. And I love verse 14. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave blessings behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? No one knows what the Lord intends to do. We all like to guess. People like to say that they understand what he's doing and what he's doing and especially what he's not doing. Maybe he'll relent. Maybe he'll extend blessings instead of curses. And I love how, the, how Joe says, what would the blessing be if he, if he came and left a blessing? It would be the ability to worship him again with a grain offering and with a drink offering. And then verses 15 through 17, he continues on and he tells and he calls that the people be gathered to a solemn assembly and he goes through this long list of people and he calls the ministers and the, the priests to pray. And what is the prayer supposed to be? Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations, a proverb among the nations that they could say to them, that they could say to the people of God, where is your God? As if he's not there because he's not helping them. Does the Lord have any plans of ever leaving his people? No. Should we still pray for the mercy of God in our day-to-day lives? Absolutely. I think this text teaches that. I think all of Scripture teaches that. Why should we pray for mercy? This is an important question. We have Christ, right? We have the righteousness of Christ. We no longer need mercy as far as eternity goes. We are set. We have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why do we pray for mercy? Well, let's quickly examine the opposite. Never praying for mercy. Someone who never has to pray for mercy assumes what? Everything's taken care of, which it is taken care of. But what happens to our hearts over time when we walk around as if everything's taken care of? We quickly forget that it was someone else that took care of it and not us. 
we began to think that we had something to do with earning mercy, which there's no such thing. You can't earn mercy. We become brazen, even, like the people of God throughout the Old Testament, like the people in the church today. You want to know what that looks like in our churches today? Well, I prayed a prayer when I was eight, so yeah, I'm still a Christian. I mean, I've not once thought about God or prayed for mercy or considered his law once since then, but yeah, I did that. My God is a gentleman. He never imposes himself on anyone. It's a pretty brazen thing to say. You just read a little bit of scripture. You can walk away from that one. We just kind of do church our own way. Even though he's given us an exact way to do things. The Bible says that, but that was for a different time. It would be different if it was written down today. Would it now? A heart that doesn't pray for the mercy of God forgets who God is. God is a consuming fire, yet he is slow to anger. And he is very quick to forgive. So we go to him in prayer, begging his mercy. How did he show us once for all that he's going to keep that promise? Even though we pray for mercy, we're not praying unexpectedly. We pray fully expecting that he's going to answer that prayer. How did he guarantee that even though his wrath is fierce, that his people will make it through? How did he guarantee that? He came. And he experienced his wrath. In the past time, he raised up prophets like Joel and kings like David. But when the time was right, God the Father sent God the Son, and he conquered sin and death on the cross, on the cross, experienced the wrath of the Father to secure our way to the Father. Not only that, both of them sent God the Holy Spirit to be here now among us. And to spoil the surprise, that's actually prophesied in the book of Job. Do we need to fear the Lord? Absolutely. Do we have anything else to fear? No, because the Lord is good. So how do we live in light of that? Well, we live lives of constant repentance. We talked about that last week. We talked. The text talks about it again this week. Again, not to earn a place with the Father, but to remind us that he is not only a God that hates sin, but he is also a God that forgives sin. He removes our guilt as far as the east is from the west. Repentance is the lifestyle of a believer that understands who God is and who they are and this giant gulf in between. And understanding that that giant gulf exists brings us closer and in deeper communion with the one who transcends that gulf for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, the day of the Lord is coming. Who can stand? Of course, only one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and he stands for you. Believe in anything else, it means you stand alone and you'll beg the mountains to fall on you rather than face the wrath of the Lamb of God. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But for believers, we mustn't ever think that we stand upon our own merit. Instead, remember, we stand upon the merit of Christ. 
A life of constant repentance demonstrates that very fact. It writes our entire outlook in life. So let us be people who live lives of repentance, turning away from our sin and turning to God. Let us be people who stand ready to offer the mercy of God to the world around us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are guilty of often forgetting who you are because we become convinced that we are part of the equation. But yet you saved us even while we were yet enemies, even while we were dead in our trespasses. We were children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience. But you are merciful. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to live lives that demonstrate that fact. Repenting of sin daily, but yet knowing that you are slow to anger, that you are merciful, and you forgive our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.